Hi everyone, I'm Max Gadney and I run After the Flood. We're a design company in London who works with companies like Google, Nikkei and Ford to create new products out of data. In this podcast series, we'll be talking to people who run their own businesses and also people who work for large corporations. And we'll be covering sectors such as finance, mobility, technology and health. So, on to our first podcast. Our work in the sports industry has helped fans engage with players, competitions and sponsors. We've just published a white paper on the importance of sports data too. And it made sense that our first podcast should be about sports data after Andy and I embarked on what could have become an interesting but lengthy email thread on what works and what does not. So on that note, I'd like to take this opportunity to introduce our first guest, Andy Kirk. And Andy is a data visualization specialist, a training provider, a teacher, author and editor of the award-winning website www.visualizingdata.com. And his first edition of Data Visualization, a handbook for data-driven design, was named one of the best six books for data geeks by the Financial Times. Andy works with a diverse range of clients from Arsenal Football Club, CERN, Google, Bank of England, and many others. And he's launching the second edition of his book, Data Visualization, a handbook for data-driven design. So, Andy, welcome, and how are you today? Thank you, Max. Very excited to be on this very first podcast uh, and looking forward to this discussion about Sports, visualisation, visualisation in sport, visualisation of sport. Excellent, good. Well, I, I knew that we, you know, I think we should have done the first one of these because, you know, we did nearly get into a very um, lengthy discussion <laughs> about this. Um, so that's why we're doing it here. So now, Andy, if you could tell us about your work that you do in sport first, um, because you actually work for a real football club. I do indeed. I've been working with Arsenal Football Club for the last four or five years, primarily engaging with their so-called performance team, which is the collection of different disciplines like nutrition, physio, psychology, all the non-football stuff other than finance, effectively. And my role with them is basically be, to be trying to find new ways to portray the vast amount of data that they collect and analyse throughout the season, in between matches and also post-season, in a way that, as we all aspire to, will engage, will have impacts and will communicate things as clearly as possible. And so to more public facing sports data, I was looking at your Twitter recently and you do frequently comment on the sort of poverty of um, public sports data display, particularly on TV and so forth. Would you want to expand on that here in this? Yes. I mean, we know, we're, we're amongst friends here, aren't we, sir? I'm looking at this from two points. First of all, as a visualisation person and I am cursed I guess by the fact that I cannot look at these things dispassionately without judging and critiquing the the quality of what I'm seeing but also as a fan as a spectator and I guess football is the, the most immediate spot for me to relate to but I see so much visualization on TV around sports and football that frustrates me in two ways first of all there's the just the basic incompetence side which is badly executed, badly designed chart types that might break some of the rules that we understand. For example, it's things like 3D pie charts, the classic things, truncated axes on bar charts. So there's that basic incompetence. And that, I think these days, is something that we shouldn't allow. You know, There's so much clear, evident good practice out there. Why do broadcasters still allow this bad stuff to happen? But I think the other side that frustrates me is the missed opportunities that exist. You know, we're not short on data. That's no longer an issue. And so much data exists that could be done more with, I think, in the sports realm in particular, that goes beyond just the the basic classic list of 
counting things by category, bar charts, breaking things down on, into a part of a whole, looking blandly at places on a, a court or a pitch where things have happened. I just think there's so much more we can do, so many more chart methods that are out there to express things visually, so many more perspectives that don't just look at one isolated number context-free. Is this a good or a bad thing? Is this more or less than normal? So I just feel that there's this huge chasm that exists between where we are and where we could be that both excites me in its potential but also frustrates me in that why isn't anyone leading and pioneering new methods? And do you think it's as much about um, the stories they're telling or not telling as it is about the the way in which they're showing this stuff? Absolutely. And I, I do feel that in general, if we take it away from the visualisation point of view, I think the the pundits that we have in a lot of sports, the best ones are the best they've ever been. This sort of new era, this new wave of very sort of sports science savvy contributors and pundits who are able to to dissect a sport very eloquently. Who would you say stands up there? I mean, I think from a football point of view, Gary Neville and Jimmy Carragher are very much clearly the top of their game in terms of the stuff they do for Sky. And I, and I think in particular the Monday night football coverage, where they've got time to breathe and they've got time to... And when you see them on their Instagram feeds, they spend all day collecting and gathering stuff ready for the evening broadcast. And it's a very much more reflective piece of analysis. But I think certainly within um, live events, there's... Let's take cricket, for example. I think cricket is a perfect context of rhythm of sport that allows you to do more with data because the events are quite discreet. The events are quite slow. Even in 2020, the events are quite slow. It gives you time to have gathered, collected and churned out charts and to have a commentator add some expertise in terms of what this means. So during the live broadcast. During the live broadcast, in between overs, during the lunch breaks. Um, because you can see that the intelligence is there about what's relevant and important about analysing this sport. But some of the methods that you see are just too narrow. They don't, they don't add anything. So some people we worked with in a sports organisation once said that football, and, and within football, I, or as soccer for our you know, international listeners, uh, would you say amongst football and I'd say these sort of global sort of flowing sports like rugby, basketball, ice hockey and you know soccer, would you say it's sort of you know, the, the, the game is more than the sum of the data. There, the, there are other patterns at play in this game that, you know, we might talk about, about you know, tempo or other things. I mm. mean, um, have you seen any efforts to kind of gather and talk about these things? Or what, what would you like to see done with these? The important thing to step back away from here is that those sports that you've listed there, these, I think sometimes they're called invasive sports, they're chaotic so much randomness occurs. You know, a ball flicks off someone's boot and it goes in a different direction than expected. And I think sometimes the analysts as a collective, let's say, use that as a as a reason to not go into more depth about complexities, about interactions between players, about predictions, about what normally happens. I mean, I think that one of the, the, the simplest charts that you often see these days, which I think has been a good... Um, improvement is the penalty map. So before a penalty is taken, because there's time, again, this is an important thing about stoppage in play, you see the picture of the goal and you see the shots that that player who's taken the penalty has made, whether they've gone in, whether they've gone wide, whether they've been saved. 
and that's a, a really nice example of both historical perspectives. So what's happening in, in over time? You might have some elements of recent trends. So what was the most recent penalty taken? Sometimes there's observations about what's been done against this same team or this same keeper. So all these different things about where on the pitch, who, what happened, what's happened in the past, kind of come together in one simple display that is also, it's not abstract. You can see a, a, a goal. You can see where the ball is. So that for the audience, there's no leap between seeing that thing and trying to work out what that means because it's literal. That's interesting that you, you know, that in describing that, you're describing, you know, several known quantifiable factors, you know, who, what, where, when, as regards, you know, activity in that penalty box. Um, there's another metric that is increasingly used now. And so and I'd like to credit one of our, some of our peers at 21st Club, um, Omar Chowdhury especially, has been involved with making this um, you know, more part of the mainstream, but expected goals. Yeah. So expected goals is interesting. It does require maybe a little more abstraction. And I, and I am thinking about a, a popular audience here of, you know, people who, you know, people sat in the pub watching a game, um, possibly not with statistics degrees, um, stuff like that. But, you know, the mass audience. Could you tell us a little bit about um, what you understand expected goals to be and why they're, why they're interesting? Yeah. So for those of you not f familiar with the expected goal or the XG, which is the, the cool term that the kids use, this is a calculation made based on shots taken in a football match that quantifies typically historically whether that shot is likely to go in or not or lead to a goal. And so what you're trying to do is, is move beyond just total shots taken and then the usual subset of were they on target to were these good shots, were these opportunities that should have led to a goal or not. And so you get this analysis now that compares expected goals with actual goals and it gives you a sense of whether you should have done better than what you actually did. Now, you talked about abstraction there, and I think that is one slight barrier. So whereas the penalty shot map was literal, XG is the consequence of calculations and algorithms. And unless I was, and I stand correct on this, I don't think there's a single calculation of truth that everyone uses. There's variations. So even in the same match, one publisher of an XG calculation might be different to another. And so that in itself creates a little bit of doubt, a little bit of not so much mistrust, but you can't anchor yourself on one single fact as an audience member or a reader of a newspaper, whatever. So, but I, I think it's a good thing because it's, it's a more intelligent measure that is calculable within the context of a match that, as you said, reflects the conversations happening in the pubs, in the grounds, in the living rooms, where people think, Okay, we scored one goal today, but we should have had four. We had some great chances today. And it quantifies that disconnect between what happened and what could have happened, which is always the frustration of any fan watching a match. I mean, I, I think that's I think it's interesting because I think football NBA is particularly well served for data in my mind because mm. it's centralized. Um it's a centralized authority which collects data on behalf of all teams. Um and so it has that benefit of, you know, it can then distribute a lot more to all the teams. Um NBA also, I believe, has better tracking um, data for all players at all times off the ball, too, and we can talk a bit about tracking later. Soccer, for me, and doesn't seem to be well served at the moment by these, by these dimensions and factors to talk about that, are, that sit beneath the obvious, that sit beneath the goals, assists, you know, tackles or so. Mm -hmm. So there's expected goals. What other things, if you, if you were in charge, if you are in charge of Premier League data and possibly with a quid or two in your pocket, um, what would you... 
um, want to be measured and given out to newspapers and, and, and um, television stations? What would you want to see fans talking about? It's a really good question. And I think it, unfortunately, the answer is something that will be a, a shift in perspective. Because if we think about the current trends, or the, the top teams at the moment are most characterised by this idea of pressing. As a Liverpool fan, Gagan pressing, Jurgen Klopp. Now, having seen the data that Arsenal collect, for example, about this, there are probably a dozen different metrics that provide some window into this notion of have we pressed well? So whether it's ball recoveries from the front three, from the front line, whether it's the number of sprints because a player is defending and sprinting towards the ball. So the unfortunate answer is that, is that there isn't a single or even maybe a small group of metrics that would do that job. But I think that's okay. And I think a broader point here is trust in the audience, trust in the potential sophistication of the audience to deal with more complex notions of counting and measuring things, but also to not see them as one thing. So you might have, for example, good possession as a percentage. But if all that is in your back three, you're passing it between each other, it's kind of useless possession. So you need two metrics. Where was it and how much of it do you have? So we need this sort of this sort of 360 perspective almost, whereby we do trust the audience to be able to assimilate the meaning of multiple different measures to form a single view of we did well, we did badly. And I, and I think that's interesting because I think they can, you know, if you give the audience new things to talk about, you want to give them a sort of simple thing everyone can talk about. For, so, for instance, a pressing score. And, you know, every team in the Premier League will have a pressing rating at the end of every weekend if we think that's an important thing. And what they'll be able to do is ideally to be able to talk about the pressing score to sort of see which, which teams are playing up high and, and doing a good job. They'll also want to maybe get underneath that and work out, well, what's this based on? Some of them might want to ask that question, well, yeah, you talk about that, or you say that, well, you know, that's just one of those, you know, an extra number we don't want, you know, they're trying to Americanize sport, they're just giving this, uh, Sky you know, obviously got time on their hands or something like that, they just want to give us all these stats that we don't use. I think this thing needs to be, these need to be credible, um, and I think you do that by sort of saying, here's the pressing score, and here's, as you say, the sort of the three factors of pressing. Yeah, exactly, and, and I think beyond that, again, if you think about the, listening about TV data viz, I mean, you could accompany these numeric, these chart-based metrics with clips to show that thing in the context of a game. Do they? And they do that in the analysis at Arsenal, yes. I presume? Yeah. I mean, video clips, video analysis is, is still the dominant method of looking, reflecting on and communicating tactics in a game. And what else do you think? I mean, so on TV, because I mean, TV is the place where we, you know, we all see a lot of live sport and somebody, I think a sports exec once um, sort of told me that, you know, really, if you're going to do any sort of any any project around sport and, and digital and, and statistics, you know, you want to focus 97% of your time on the live experience, 2% of your time on the what happened afterwards and 1% of your time on what's coming up. And it really is, you know, live because of the eyeballs, attention and cash is, is, is so the thing to get. And then you get then you're in TV and then you're in a production studio in TV. I mean, what, what other things um, would you like to see on TV? Is there anything on football or across other sports? I mean, going back to the idea of sophistication, I think if we just flick over to cricket again, and I think cricket, looking back, I think probably Channel 4, so UK listeners, Channel 4, I think took on the rights around the 2000s, and they pioneered a lot of new visual analysis, and then Sky took that on and, and have sort of set the bar even higher. 
if you look at the array of things that they are quantifying and counting and visualizing, you're talking about spin, you're talking about revolutions of a ball, you're talking about these complex things like leg before wicket decisions. These are quite high-end terms and notions, and the audience is kind of expected to be on board with these things. And you often don't get much explanation to bring in the the everyday viewer to up to a, a level of what what the hell does all this stuff mean? There's an assumption that, yeah, if you're watching this, come to us. We won't drop this down to you. Come up to us. And I think what they've done so well is they they have balanced this idea of, let's say, abstract chart types. So let's imagine a, a bar chart with number of runs scored per over in a limited overs game. But then they've also done things that augment the pitch. So you can see a, a bowler's six deliveries, where they've all pitched, where they've all gone after the ball's landed on the ground. And I was listening to a, a little bit of a, a side note to this, but I think it's important. I was listening to the uh, Mark Kermode film podcast recently, and he's talking about this new documentary out about uh, the designer of, of the Highline Garden in New York. And one of the things that this designer mentioned is that designers plan from a helicopter. You've got this diagram of the whole extent of the High Line, and they design from that helicopter perspective. But the experience of a person walking down the High Line is not in a drone or a helicopter. It's those little glimpses of different juxtaposed plants and buildings and railway sleepers and weird things. And so he design things from that perspective of where does somebody experience this? And I think going back to cricket, that's what is done well. Because although you've got that notion of a 3D pitch, and you've got all these little balls, that's a good length, that's a short length, whatever, there's a frustration by default that comes into me, which I want to see that from a helicopter, because I'm getting that 3D distortion. But equally, when I watch this match, the view that you have portrayed those results back to me are how I experience it. So it makes sense to augment things where possible, when it's not superfluous, into a context, uh, a scene that is what we're watching. And I think that's a really important way that we can think about improving analysis of other sports and looking at totally different sports, things like sailing. I recall an article that talked about the advancements in augmenting sailing coverage, whereby for the first time you could see, well, who the hell's winning? So you've got this complex route and you've got these different viewing perspectives. You think, well, who's ahead? I don't know where the leading sailing boat is. So by adding these augmented views, you can get a better sense of position and context. And they do all that a lot in American football as well. And it just adds so much richness. Now, that's a bit different to visualizations per se, but it is still this annotated um, explanation of what you are seeing as a viewer. What, what does all this mean? I think that's interesting. I think the... Um what you say about augmentation is interesting and is unique to television design. Um, my colleagues who work, used to work at Sky um, Sports, for instance, they would say that, and Sky News, they would say that they'll never interrupt um, on Sky News a certainly a breaking news story, but they'll never interview, interrupt the rolling news coverage with a full screen graphic because they want the users to always be looking somebody in the eye, um, a news presenter in the eye. So they'll go to they'll do a cut screen graphic with a presenter pointing it out, a bit like Hans Rosling mm -hmm. would. I mean, Hans Rosling sort of used to say that you know the best thing about his stuff is not the visualizations itself, the fact that there is a Swedish academic leaping around at the side of them. Yeah. So I think you've got this person to um, guide you through like you have in the weather, 
Um, and I think when you do then go to cuts, when you do then go to full screen, I think companies like Sport Vision in the States, you mentioned American football, mm. are very interesting. And also the also the work they do in um, baseball with the, you know, the small, the box, the pitching box. Yeah. I really don't know what it's called, but, you know, it's, <laughs> it's that square thing behind yeah. the person yeah. with the bat. So I think that's it. And I think that is a, a unique challenge of, of, of dealing with TV graphics in, in live. And that requires a lot more sort of templating. I yeah. Think, yeah. But, but as you said, when you've got the expert orator, if they can, you know, stand in front of a big screen, if they can stand in front of a, a big touchpad, as they often do in, in, in UK sports in particular, um, you have got that person present. So you do have that still, that idea of someone you can look at and listen to. Um, and I think, you know, I, I found an example of, um, a different context again, an example of a, a piece recorded by a guy called Christopher Cook for BBC's Newsnight programme, looking at politics. And it's one of the first occasions where I, th I was really, really impressed by a video package that included video footage and different interviews, but also charts. And he brought this kind of Hans Rosling type oratory to a complicated scatterplot. I mean, can you imagine a scatterplot on TV? This guy brought it together perfectly because he just started off by, here's all the dots on the X. And then this is what happens when we introduce the Y. Now, this bunch of dots over there means this, and this bunch of dots down there means that. Now what happens if we filter for these? And so he brought that slow, cohesive, systematic explanation of how to read it, as well as what did it mean. Now, that's quite courageous because, you know, the clip is two or three minutes. You don't always have that luxury of space and time to do such things. And so the question is, I think, perhaps about the division of immediacy for live context, like you mentioned, about the, the importance of what, where the focus should be on a live event, but then where the opportunity lends itself for post-match analysis, for future days, reflective analysis, to go into more depth. And I think that will also have the benefit of almost partitioning the audience. If you guys want to see something more important, more sophisticated, come with us on Monday. Or if you just want to see something that is different and is labelled as such, and I think the importance in this of, of labelling to avoid you know, accusations of sort of dumbing down or sort of like or um, making it too fancy and clever mm -hmm. is really important. And it's interesting that you, you point about the fellow on Newsnight. I mean, he, he looks a bit more like an analyst, a bit like um, Hans Rosling or weathermen and women look more like yeah. sort of scientists with some charts. And I think as an archetype, I think that's really important that in sports commentary, you've got the, you know, the, the television face, the face of the viewer, um, the face of the person. And, and he or she will generally have a veteran, you know, a mm. veteran warrior sports person sat next to them and there'll be some sort of wizard somewhere too. And I think that's <laughs> what used to happen in, say, fantasy football isn't it, years ago where they'd have, um, you know, their stato friends yes, coming. Yeah. And actually that person has, has a license to be as dorky as they like. And with this authority as well. Yeah. yeah, and all that. So it's the 1950s, you know, person in the white coat on the advert, isn't it? Yeah. So, you know, that sort of, that authority figure. And I think TV should, I think, it can't do, you know, it shouldn't try and do everything all at once, you know, mm. with all these sort of similar identikit presenters. I think actually to divide it up and actually have these sections. And that's where I think Sky, as you say, went quite, got quite good with Gary Neville talking about that. I personally think they could introduce another per, another another um, person to do the stats stuff. Yes. I think Neville and Carragher are so authoritative on their veterans experience yes yeah um i think the bbc tried it with robbie savage at some point didn't they doing being the voice yeah. of data but you know that's not, not sure work, <laughs> <laughs> i didn't not sure how that didn't happen didn't last long, interesting yeah. if to kind of sub, sort of subvert that if they did go to the veteran and say right can you you do this today 
because that might get more more of a, an, an appeal, a credibility with the people who are tuned in to watch them, the dinosaurs of the game, the the Graham Soonesses, the um, I don't know, the Imbothams on 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 cricket. Um, and it'd be interesting to see, if, almost like a Trojan horse, if they sort of took the the reins for those sections, if it were bringing that audience saying, well, if it's good for him, it's good for me, that kind of thing. And that's where collaboration is important, because I think if you get somebody and the role of the translator, because I think, you know, a, a good producer, which has obviously happened there in Newsnight, happens in different places. Um, I think if you had somebody at Sky or BT or whoever's got the football to, with someone like Rio Ferdinand, mm. for instance, saying, right, as a, as a defender, you know you're in trouble when. And Ferdinand's really good like yes. that. So is Frank yeah. Lampard very good on that sort of stuff to say, you know, we know that when we see X and Y happening, we're in trouble. Mm. And, and actually, that's stuff you can codify back into the stats. Yeah. I think so to use them as sort of, you know, use the, the voice of the, you know, the voice of the experts in, in helping design these, these um, audience KPIs. Well, that's right, because you could have someone like Ferdinand saying, if a defender's making a tackle, that's a bad sign. We should not be in position where we need to make a tackle, because then that could then segue into okay, let's look at the, you know, the, the, the sort of pass through the midfield sort of counts and things like this, that would reveal that as a, yeah, that's a real threat. And if you've, if you've seen that thing happening, it's a proxy indicator that you are gradually losing control uh, of a match. And I think it's in, and I think they could look for. I say, you know, where you you mentioned in cricket, you know, you have a little more permission. You have a a sort of um, time, you have chapterized time in cricket, don't you, by overs and mm. so forth. Um, you know, there isn't really that in football um, in soccer apart from halftime. But, you know, TV is a, it can, it, it's written rules before. It could maybe, I'm not saying introduce sort of like breaks and everything like that, but, you know, you could certainly have, the, you know, analysis every 10 minutes. Yeah. Which, and it means that, you know, studio-based um, data scientists or whoever, Ferdinand could pass on some post-it notes and they could come up with this stuff a bit more on the fly. I think that could be, could be quite cool. I've quite, about second screen. So, I mean, you know, we're, if the live live experience is is everything, I mean, one thing we haven't chatted about yet is the second screen experience, and that is where, you know, um, quite a few different sports bodies in their in their market research segments will have the people at home who are looking at the the telly. They're also looking at their phones or their something. What, what have, you, have you seen any good stuff on second screens to help support viewing experience? I suppose the only one I've experienced myself is through BT Sports. So on the BT Sports app, you can get a different view that provides almost like a timeline of events on the x-axis so you can then scroll back and forth so it's not just a what's happened but also let's go back and watch it again major events and then there's obviously the, the kind of classic stats alongside it again it feels it's good it feels like there's a there's a whole new level that you could go to um and i think if we have to think again about the the encounter the the situation that the audience is experiencing this event in now if this is a second screen we still need to remember the first screen. So what you're watching on that second screen, the mobile or tablet, needs not to distract you too much away from what you should be watching and also perhaps shouldn't take a great deal of time to to um, to interpret, to, to make sense of. That said, I'm going to argue against myself now, football matches don't change that much. The things that you're going to track, the things that are important aren't going to change that much. So going back to one of my flag-waving causes, which is having more confidence and faith in the audience to deal with different chart displays. If you encounter it once, the first occasion might be a little bit alien. What, what the hell is this Sankey diagram? What, what's, how do I make sense of this? Well, 
once you've seen it once and you've worked out how to read it once, that experiential benefit feeds into the second encounter, which is more immediate. And then the third, fourth time becomes second nature. And this is one of the things that we've tried to do historically at Arsenal, which is although we don't always go straight into the deep end with a very complex display first time, we know that because there are going to be 40, 50, 60 matches a season, that repeated exposure will only lead to more familiarity with the methods that we are using. And if you carefully coach people first time round, or provide the on-demand coaching, how do I read this, what does it mean? It then becomes an extra part of your vocabulary because everyone's on both sides are aware of how and what it means. So again, I think you could be more ambitious with the second screens, albeit I don't want you to be too distracted from the first screen, but let's try different things. But maybe make them optional. So again, you've got the audience's own control over what you want to see. If you want to go a bit deeper, click on this. Let's look at another screen. I think the the live feed is, a, is obviously a, a timely, timeless format now. Um, but I think what you see some services doing better, I think BBC Sport do this quite well, um, is, is providing sort of um, access points um, for um, people reading these live feeds for the types of data they're seeing and for the types of, you know, so we've got something that is a piece of commentary or it's a, a piece of data comes in or a quote from someone. You can quickly, you can scroll it and rather than just a long sort of blurb, there's there's kind of quite nice sort of signposts as to kind of what sort of stuff you're going to get. And it mm. tells you and it lets you know that it's okay, you know, you can just scan and read this quickly rather than sort of like get lost at, you know, what minute are we at or stuff like that. Yeah, but I also go back to the point about the, you know, the people in the pub conversing around these things. Well, these kind of curiosities, you know, how, how many times has that guy missed a penalty? How many times have, has that person had a shot that's gone wide? Why do they keep trying these same shots? If you had this exploratory device that tried to give answers to some of these questions, I think there'd be the appetite. The appetite is there because the conversations are having. When I'm sat watching a match with somebody else, we're having these conversations, but they're all speculative. And they're all based on just some narrow glimpse of what we we think is probably the truth. And I think it'd be, I think it'd be, once again, you'd be pushing at an open door with the audience that we're talking about. It will differ for sports. I mean, I don't think we can get away from that. You know, a cricket, a baseball match is very different to a, a football match, a basketball match, because it's just so rapid. Um, but I think a key thing, I'm going to put this back to a question to you. So I'm just going to grab the reins of the podcast for one minute. Mm. Do you think that the way that, let's say, baseball and cricket is quite statistically supplemented is because they think that the audience already has that numeracy and that sort of that bent towards looking at every single count and looking at scorecards and being obsessed by the uh, the at-bat rates or whatever it is in baseball? Do you think there's a, there's a sort of self-fulfilling circle there that is missing in other sports like football, whereby... There just doesn't seem to be, probably in the eyes of broadcasters, trust that the audience in this sport is as numerate as it would be in the others. I think that American, that all American sports um, make more stats, and I think that all American audiences like more stats. Um, I think American sports are uniquely formed, timed, and so to create different deltas um, within a game. Um, you know, you have quarter, you have more quarters, you have more timeouts, you have more times to reflect and aggregate and speak back the progress of the, of the um, 
of the of the event. I think they are typically more high scoring, so you've got more data points throughout to yeah. look at these things. And there's just a lot more. To, there's a lot more sort of sub as we talked about you know, earlier on. We're sort of like you know the, the pressing factors. You know, I mean that's you know. I think that's excellent stuff. I think American sports have a lot of all that stuff. They have all the they, they name the different passes. You know, the, the in American football, you know, you have all the different sorts of passes. Yeah. Um, and you know, they are they're in coaching playbooks, but they're also talked about by fans. Whereas in you know, really in football, you don't really have that sort of articulation of what sort of pass that was. We all know what it was. Yeah. Now. So American sports are are created and are and are as such. Um, I think there is something. Um, I think there's also something then, in, and if we look at soccer for the best example of a global sport that seems un, unmeasurable, um, you know, we don't think it is, and I think that will change over time. Um, I think what is not helping is, I think, the football tradition. That's why I asked you about managers and at the beginning who are interested or not mm. interested in stats, because um, I think that you speak to, I think speaking to various sort of sports authorities or executives we might speak to, you know, I love the phrase, um, hard to measure football because it's a low-scoring game of luck. And football is a low-scoring game of luck. And but you know, underneath that, you know, there is something more complicated there. And I don't want to necessarily, um, in our studios' work or just generally in society, I don't want to sort of overcodify everything. It's nice yeah. to have some things that are just poetic, and you don't know why they happen. Yeah. On the other hand, I think there could be a little more data created by um, th- some of these games in order to talk about them. With so uh, yes, I think American sports are are more so, and I think the. Um, there are a couple. There's one American company, Sport Vision, for instance, who do, who I think they do a great job. And anyone interested in um, in, in this and American sports, for instance, should look at Sport Vision's work. Um, it's mostly in live TV. Um, they invented the ten yard line for American football, um, which is just a fantastic sort of you know what needs to happen next um, visualization. Um, I think the interesting thing about Sport Vision, most of their work, despite the complexity and amount of data in American sports, is actually very simple and seeks to address the needs of the mass audience, the 80% mm. who are just sort of looking up from a bar to see what's going on and again back to their conversation. So I think that's quite charming in a way. So, Amer- so in American sports, you have this um, total complexity of stats, but actually a very uh, a readiness, mm. possibly because the Americans are better at consumer stuff better. Yeah. Um, anyway, but um, yeah, I think um, I would like to see some more of that in British. I'd like to see some more. Of that in, I think rugby is an interesting place. I think you're starting to see a little more of that in um, what rugby um, what some of the England sponsors do, you know, obviously a large, a large place all this can happen is in sponsorship. And so I think you're going to increasingly see probably not by the RFU or the, or the teams themselves, because the, there's not as much cash involved there, but, you know, maybe some of the sponsors who get involved with six nations or Heineken cups or so um, in rugby will um, look to the different fa- rugby is a phased game and it's a game of like, many um, subgroups of, mm. of players. And I think you could start to see some stuff there, but I think all of this, and I believe, and I'm not sure here, um, that um, I think rugby players are sometimes tagged up also for their location and their tracking data. Yeah. I think, um, so, you know, you might see some more stuff there. So that's to answer your question. Yeah, it does. And I think there's interesting parallels there, almost like um, sibling sport types. So baseball feels like a sibling to cricket. Basketball would probably be the most similar to soccer in that you've got that, again, that invasion, but you've got mistakes and you've got in a sense, almost a, a perspective of minimise the failures, minimise the errors. And then rugby would be a pairing for American football. So you've got that, again, that notion of phasing and you've got that notion of attack and defence um, player divisions, specialist roles. Um, so it would seem that there's lots that they could sort of learn from each, from each other. And then, you know, 
I think there's lots of interesting things about what you could do in, in tennis. Um, I mean, if you think about, again, the idea that tennis is a very discreet event, um, and it does have that occasion where you've got the, the break between sets, the break between games as well, it does lend itself to, to more. And I think, you know, I was watching Wimbledon coverage this week, it still feels a bit stuck in the sort of 1990s perspective, number of aces, fastest serve. Well, I want to see fastest serve across the ebb and flow of a match. Is this player getting more powerful? Have they hit a rhythm? Has it dropped? Which might suggest that they're losing a bit of energy, a little, a little bit of fatigue. Because you, you wonder if behind the scenes, the coaches, not those sat in the in the boxes next to Cliff Richard, the coaches behind the scenes must be looking at these things and somehow getting the messages back that the opposition, that they're losing a little bit of strength here. So there's there's so much exciting potential. It goes back to my initial point of the frustration that we just don't seem to be tapping into this. However, obviously we don't get access to all these coaches and all these sports analytics teams who are very much kind of a closed door for their own their own athlete in question, I guess. And I think, yeah, and I, and I think the place to start might be, you know, at tennis, at um, driving sports, for instance, um, racing sports, is to, is to think about... Um, some of the, again, taking it back to the factors that people talk about. Um, and it's not all about things per second and, and all this kind of stuff and distance, speed, time. It's, I think it's as much about playing styles. I think, you know, the sort of few, and looking to create consistent ways to talk about stuff like a player's, a player's or a, um, a driver's style, for instance. Mm. You know, are they combative? Are they, are they um, you know, methodical? You know, all these, these are the things that people talk about. And I think, you know, one could do this from looking at any sport and just, you know, re- reverse engineering 100 hundred you know newspaper articles about it. See mm-hmm. how you know who is talking about who in what way. So um one question we have here is about um um for you um because you know part of your website, part of visualizingdata.com is a um a very healthy um audit every month you do of um what's out there in terms of articles and, and best practice in data visualization. So with your sort of you know your three spy satellites that you're obviously gathering this stuff with, <laughs> what have you <laughs> you're sort of like, you know, your um, team of minions, actually. your time, yeah. yeah, your line through to Interpol. What can you tell us about um, work that you think is excellent? And we'll put all these links up on afterwards on afterthefood.com. We'll we'll do some resource to kind of allude to some of the things we've talked about, both companies and people and stuff. Take us through a couple of things that you think are interesting, worth worth looking at for people who might not have seen these things. As, as a as a broad topic, I mean, I think politics is hard to go against as a as a very data driven very public, very multifaceted topic that has and comes with its partisan baggage, but also has facts. And it has deep, deep wells of data of the now, of the what could happen and of what has happened historically. Um, You know, most of the the dominant, shall we say, publicly visible visualisation works often come from the media, so the, the newspapers. And for those who are not perhaps as connected to the data world as we are, you're looking at the New York Times, The Guardian, The Financial Times, The Washington Post from a Western world. You're looking at Die Zeit in Germany. You're looking at the South China Morning Post, Reuters globally. And, you know, they do some staggering things that are clever, relevant bits of analysis that are in the most challenging context of this needs to be out tomorrow in tomorrow's print run. And the fact that they can turn around these ambitious projects, these interactive projects often, these 
well annotated, well explained pieces of work, but also using novel methods that somehow, I don't know if you observe this yourself, but somehow never seem to duplicate what others have done. They always find to find seem to find novel ways. I think to me that that stands out as the almost the, the highest benchmark of this field in practice at the moment. Beyond that, I think there's a there's a really interesting era that we now live in, which I think we're going to come on to anyway, which is qualitative visualizations and qualitative data. And it kind of goes back to the point you've just said there about driving style. Is this person methodical? Is this person, you know, a bit, a bit dangerous, a bit edgy? These are things that don't always have a, a number. These are things that don't often have a anything more than a, a collection, almost like a, a, a recipe, a buffet of different ingredients that you kind of come to a conclusion. But I do see a lot more methods these days of people looking at qualitative related data. Um, an example that I really like, for example, is from someone else has done. It's not my topic of interest. Let me just put that out there right now. Taylor Swift, the popular musician, I believe. Uh, someone's done some analysis. Uh, Shirley Wu, a fantastic developer over in San Francisco. She did some analysis running through, um, I think, some kind of AI tool. I can't remember the exact tool, but all the lyrics in Taylor Swift songs. And it turns out a, a kind of an estimate of the balance of sentiment expressed by these lyrics. And there's four, something like fear, happiness, um, sadness, and some other more positive notion. And then the resulting visualization is, I can't find a better term for this, but a gooey display. It's like a watercolor palette. There's a bit of mixture of blue, which is sadness, and there's a bit of mixture of yellow, which is happiness. And what I like about this, and it kind of goes against the teachings that we've had in this field for years, which is precision, accuracy, and the detail of interpretation is paramount. Mm -hmm. This is impossibly imperfect, but it's about an imperfect thing. And so this sort of gooey display, which is kind of plotted on this sort of grid of all these different songs, captures the sketchiness, the gooiness of the data upon which it's relating to. It captures the the imperfections of the calculations that have been used to, to, to derive the dominant sense sentiment. And I think that kind of represents this this new era of a bit more courage in how we portray data, which isn't just always about bar charts and precision. It's about what seems to be most coherent with the underlying metaphor of what this thing is showing. And if that means that something looks imprecise and it's hard to read numerically, cool, because the thing that it's on about is imperfect. And sometimes we force perfection on things that is not. And so I think it just reflects this new era whereby we're okay with GUI, we're okay with bendy and kind of almost and just aboutness. And I think that's something that we can bring back to the discussion about sport. When we talk about things that are imperfect, you know, when you talk about expected goals, well, they're often portrayed as two decimal point numbers, which implies precision, implies that this is exactly 0.83 expected goal. It's probably not best portrayed like that. Maybe it should be portrayed in language like good chance, should have scored, would normally have scored, something that's a bit more consistent with the language of the audience. I think what you say is very interesting there about the... Um, the the rushing to not not to, to conclude but rushing to visualize in a precise way um, I think there's a couple of things I think it's the a new industry wanting to seem credible and almost sort of dress up in its parents you know dress up dress up a bit too smart in order to convince and otherwise you know industry of humanities graduates 
um, who just really don't want to know about anything <laughs> factual. I think that many sports um, designers, and certainly in, in TV, probably did work in news at some point. Um, and, and you see that sort of rush to kind of like try to kind of create something finished and real and 100% accurate. Um, and that's why they can't bring themselves to kind of play in this sort of middle area. You talk about this, this grey zone. I think it's very interesting. The one place I thought they did that excellently in, in news, and this will be another podcast, I'm sure, on, on news design at some point, um, was when they captured Saddam Hussein after the 2003 Iraq war. Um, they captured him uh, some time later. And, and newspapers around the world looking to visualize and reconstruct this event because only one journalist was allowed into this compound where they found him. Newspapers around the world, they sort of depended on um, they depended on a, a bit of sort of hearsay from the journalists on the ground, but also then the graphics departments were very keen, I think, at the time to sort of show what they knew and show how effective they were in the render. So they all got out their sort of 3D studio, um, you know, sort of CGI packages and would probably be arguing if they, you know, but the minute you do that, you then have to work out, well, what does a soil substrate of, you know, just outside Decrete look like? And have we got any geologists on staff? Because that's what you've got to show. Yeah. If you're going to go 3D, that's what you've got to show. And actually, the New York Times did a great job. And it was Archie Say at the New York Times who was actually in that compound. And he, you know, from all the privilege and access, unique access of being in that compound, he didn't send back a 3D thing. He sent back a pen sketch to basically say, here's what we know. You know, this is what we know. This is this will do. This is yeah. good enough. And and I think that sort of what we know so far is really interesting. And about the same time, then CNN, because everything was moving so quickly, and Internet news was as a mass news form was requiring everyone the expectation was it was creating the expectation that we know everything. It's live and up to date. And CNN had this great thing of sort of saying, well, what we know so far, and they sort of just have bullet points. Mm. You know, not one, two, three. You know, but they actually design for vagary. Yeah. And so I think there is an acceptable designed for vagary but again it needs to be labeled doesn't it because in this day and age of you know the, some of our politicians and um you know attitudes to facts um i think we've got to be quite careful Absolutely. about how we label this stuff yeah and i think that idea of sketches extends to uncertainties um i mean i think that again that would be a, a big topic right now in visualization lots of perhaps as a re reflex from the u.s election perhaps in 2016 in particular but the notion of probabilities, the notion of risk, the notion of likelihoods, of degrees of certainties, things like tornado tracking. The way that that's portrayed is often this line which implies definite that's going to happen. And even with these cones that you often see, there's often a sense, oh yeah, well my town's just outside that, so we're going to have no wind. There'll be no wind because we're outside that cone. That's not going to be the case. And so I think you're right, we, we we should embrace uncertainties, we should absolutely label them as we don't know, but this is the best we've got, and actually the best we've got is probably good enough for most people's decision-making attached to this thing. Um, but but don't be a, a servant to absolute certainty and absolute facts, and not so much absolute truths, but I think sometimes we do have this hesitation to go ahead with things if we're not absolutely certain. Um, but sometimes that's fine. So long as we convey that notion of here's the the footnote to this because we, we're not sure, but it's probably good enough for what this exchange is 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 all about. So, um, Andy, um, you tweeted that you're going to appear here, and actually, one of your followers has sent a question. Yeah, so I've got a question from Jamie Pringle, who's very much knee deep in the world of sports science, um, and his question was around decision making in live sport context, 
So, for example, coaching tactics. And he makes the point that they need to be super quick. So not only the gathering and the availability of the data that the thing is about, but also the decision-making that comes off that. So he talks about this idea that coaching tactics are often driven by only a few critical metrics, measures. What would our principles be for organising this information to prioritise these key things, but also to potentially allow for more underpinning exploratory detail to be delved into more deeply? And, I mean, that's, that's a... That's a podcast in itself, I think, an answer to that question. But I think it comes down to this idea of who. And I'm, I'm thinking, so you're a Spurs fan, Max. And whenever I watch Spurs, you've got the main man who's just watching the game. But then you've got his two sidekicks. And they've often got tablets in front of them. And I don't think that's just watching the game on TV for the adverts. I believe that they must have a second screen view that we talked about earlier. And I wonder if, when you think about the size of the teams that are now surrounding, not just football, not just cricket, because again, you look at the pavilion in a cricket match, you've got an army of sports scientists there with all their laptops watching different things. I think, first of all, the, the, the key issue is, are you aware of what is important? So what is key? And that, again, might come back to the thing we talked about earlier, which is the ebb and flow of what's important, because... Let's look at, look at football. Uh, a second half might be very different in a tactical sense to a first half because goals have been scored, a player's been injured, someone's now clearly off form. They've arranged their team very differently. So the things that might become important in a second half context might be very different to what is in the first half. And I wonder if there's this notion of a almost like a an evolving kind of dashboard whereby different phases of a game you start to elevate different things. So if a goal's being scored against you, the dashboard that you have kind of reconfigures to look at metrics around recoveries or comeback. And or the yeah, or the application is is two way and is interactive. And if there was a member of the coaching staff, for instance, on the American team last night and the Women's World Cup um, game against England, um, one of the American coaches said, "Okay, right, we're into you know England just missed their penalty. We're definitely into the last phase of the match now." And America are well known for sort of shutting down games and that sort of stuff. Do they have a slider that goes from sort of, you know, creative to obstructive? Yes. And they slide it along to close this thing down now. Like a um, scenario sort of yeah. setting. Yeah, and it could and it yeah. could be you know, on the on the uh, on the um interface, it could just be a sort of like a slider, like a graphic equalizer, you know, that's you know, that sort of thing. Showing my age there with the graphic equalizers. <laughs> <laughs> um, I see parents' kids. Yeah, yeah. So it's <laughs> so it's um so you know they slide it along and then basically that then alters the KPIs that they're expecting from their different team. Yeah. And so that you know the sub the holding the midfielder is is not looking to do kind of productive passes up front, but is looking to kind of break things down yeah. or looking to kind of make more tackles. So I think yeah. you could have that sort of you could have dynamic um KPIs and, and things. But I think also those those tablets, let's not Let's wonder what's on those things. Um, but I think the, I would like to see those things almost. I wonder if they're actually looking at Slack, um, or Symphony. Probably that's a bit more, um, you know, or, or a you know, or Telegraph, some sort of secure messaging app. Uh, okay. Because, and I don't know this for sure. Yeah, yeah. But I think that they, you know, the number that I think the, they could be looking for two things. One extremely quantitative could be, they could be getting their own aggregations from Opta, you know, the Opta Feed Nine, mm. um, showing different events. And so if they know that the new new player. You know, Dombolo, whatever, he's, mm. he's going to be good, but he's, you know, is he doing what we want him to? Mm. I mean, they can kind of all see that, but is there anything they're missing out? So showing the invisible, you know, yeah. making that clear. 
But more to the point, I think, back to the um, um, on the on the iPad, would they actually be seeing secure messaging from you know a two or three different sort of um, coaching staff they've got around the place who've been given certain tasks? Because yeah. I think at the end of the day. Um, you know, with an hour and a half of, of live sport, you really want to trust the per. You know, you want to trust people mm. um, a lot, and a person will tell you they they will just see whether that person is doing the the basic quant stuff, mm. making their passes, but they'll also also notice other deeper qualitative stuff, which yeah. happened, which for now I think humans know best. So, I, I'd be fascinated with what's on those what's on those things. Um, That's interesting because as well, I guess in in football you, you probably have this new era of um, the the manager delegator, you know, going back to Jurgen Klopp, he, he kind of entrusts specialists beneath him to be the best at that thing. He knows he's not, but he knows he can trust them to elevate something important about that matter. And so there's that. And that, and that comes back to, the, as you said, the, the vantage point. And it could be people at home and watching on TV. It could be people up in the stands. I mean, I remember when Liverpool played Spurs, Pochettino was banned from the pitch side and he was up in the stands and he... I think said that he kind of enjoyed it because he could see the the pitch from a different perspective and saw things he would miss. So there is that, um, and you mentioned an interesting point there about what have you asked them to do. So in a sense, you can only measure um, anything really as being good or bad if you know what the expectation is. So, and, and this goes back, I think, also to the point about the sophistication of audiences. You know, as football fans, again, just sorry to focus on football, but as football fans, we often have um, a player who we just like to moan about because they never do anything. And I'm thinking, so the context at Arsenal, Mesut Ozil gets lots of stick because he has this sort of languid appearance. He never seems to be doing much. Most of the stats will show you that Mesut Ozil covers the most ground for Arsenal in a match. And yet the way that he appears to be performing is very different to what is actually the case. But sometimes you get players who might look very busy, but the manager said, don't be running around like that. I always remember Thierry Henry saying that his success was often about standing still because as others moved around him, it created space because he just stood still. So there's something about what are you asking that person to do and then let's measure what you've asked them to do, which comes back to the idea of scenarios as settings on some kind of dashboard, back to Jamie's question, which would allow you to sort of set parameters and expectations against the different things that you've tactically instructed the players or the the athletes and then use that to drive what the key metrics are. And then if you've got the technology and also the multiple eyeballs sufficient to look at all these different perspectives, then you can have the next layer beneath of more detail, more exploratory. You drive different parameters and, and see what might come out. But I think it's a... I think it's a crucial thing, and I think again the, the 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 physical setting of a sporting event will be important because a football coach, other than shouting very loudly over a, a crowd, usually has quite limited capacity to impart instructions in a match. You might drag over the left back or the right back and say, Look, "Tell tell so and so over there to to do this more or less of that." Whereas in a cricket match, you've got these perhaps more often occasions whereby, a, I don't know, like a, a drinks break, one of the coaches might go out and have a little quick word or a player will go out as a proxy to just impart a few instructions. There are more instructions that are possible from the pavilion. Um, in in athletics, you know, obviously these things are often very, very short bursts of events, but even in things like 10,000 metres, there's 
there's chance for you to kind of give some instructions to to, to athletes. So I think the situation of that sport and what capacity a coach or a decision maker actually has to influence is, is another key factor. I think one thing that will allow for more intelligent reporting for coaches, um, it, both in game and and afterwards when they're doing their week, you know their team talks on a Monday or Tuesday morning, um, but also something that's going to enliven the public use of sports data in, in the media or on TV and in other outlet, outlets, and we'll be tracking data. I think tracking data is fascinating. I think it's um, we have event data right now, so we can see you know who, who's passing and where but we don't have any sense of the person who ran into space to receive that pass and the activity they did off That's the, the ball. That's the invisible events you talked about. Yeah. yeah, yeah, these invisible events, which I think in sports like, yeah, the, the global, the, the flowing sports, the invasive sports, as we mentioned, you know, basketball, rugby, you know, it's those players who seem to be in the right place at the right time, uh, who seem to have intelligence, who have all these high qualitative um, factors around them that makes, um, enlivens conversations with, with fans. And when we can, and, and right now in, in the football, FIFA doesn't agree with um, FIFA doesn't want to tag every player with a with a chip um, that would be read by pitch side sensors. Obviously, GPS satellites don't go quick enough to get Thierry Henry running at ten meters a second or something like that. So um, it's got to be um, pitch side GPS um, things. And, and FIFA basically said no, we don't want to do it because you know, football is a sport and needs to be able to be played on a beach um, anywhere mm. you are. And I, uh, you know, I kind of quite like that. Um, the data professional in me is <laughs> kind of annoyed. <laughs> and so at the moment. It's only Premier League teams or really high teams or the you know aggregated NBA um, who who share the costs of this, for instance, um, who can um, afford the cameras, the high definition cameras around the grounds, um, which take take video footage and then retrospectively analyze this stuff mm. to give to the playing staff on Monday morning. So mm. we don't really get to see you know the, the players who you know the, those those really clever runs that the players we know who make those runs. So at Spurs, it'll be you know Deli Ali when he's on his on a good game, getting into the right position, stuff like that. That's um, We can see it if we're there, but we don't get any reporting mm. on it. Um, and then, so there's, I think, a few. You begin to see it in, uh, in fantasy football. Um, certainly the Premier League's fantasy football yeah. tournament starts to make these new KPIs around um, intelligence, creativity, things like that. But yeah. again, we always want to know how that breaks down. We're always saying a creative player. We all kind of roughly know that to be true. Yeah. It's worth bringing up the, you know, a while ago, the Castrol Performance Index did a great job of actually marking according to some sort of weight, weighting and algorithm the um, incoming optidata around Champions League performances um, several years ago now. But, you know, they, they'd come out with a coefficient of, you know, um, you know, James Milner is number two with, um, you know, a, a coefficient of, you know, 0.9.752. And <laughs> you kind of know that he's had some good games and, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, Gareth Bale's at number four. And it all kind of makes sense when you look at their table, but you're not quite sure what it's based on. Yeah. And I don't think you're going to engage any new audiences um with these with these stats or with these ideas if it's all sort of magic recipes sort of kfc you know magic recipes you know that only three people in the world know that only three people yeah. in the world know <laughs> yeah and everyone else is slightly confused so andy um one thing to ask is so we've talked a lot about sports data here and you know i know that your work's taken you for the last several years across tons of different um you know companies and sectors and so are there any sort of lessons you, you sort of feel that sports data can teach um, other sectors, other businesses and, and that you you deal with? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think the the headline observation about all these things is that the data that we refer to is still numbers. 
its words, its categories, its counts of things, its measurements, its places and locations. So we can often find this attitude, and and I do see this a lot working with different clients, different industries, that they think their data is the most special data that's ever been collected. And it's important to separate out the meaning of the data, absolutely is, because it's about them, it's about what they do, it's about what they're aspiring to do. But the data values, the mechanics of the data that they hold and possess is not special insofar as it doesn't have a special treatment that none others can can be covered by. We're still looking at the same repertoire of chart types. That It's a common visual language. And so I think one of the things that sports can learn from others and others can learn from sports is that the most important thing always is to understand the subject, is to understand the systems, is to understand the science of a, of a, of a, a sport or a discipline. I mean, I've, I've worked before my life as a freelancer, I've worked in normal jobs and I've worked in universities and I've worked in insurance companies and police forces. And what always struck me about the more public sector side of my career has been that it's always messy, it's complex because you don't have this obvious bottom line of we want to make profit or we want to sell more widgets. It's about what can we do to make people a little bit more safe or a bit more satisfied. And these are difficult notions and I often take my hat off to the people who are succeeding in local governments as analytics people or teams because counting things is hard, counting the right things is even harder and then synthesising this whole thing so that you can actually make sense of are we doing the right things in the right places with the right amount of resources for the right type of people? It's 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 really, really hard. So sport isn't that hard. We sometimes make it harder than it needs to be. But I do think that this this whole subject of visually portraying data is something that is open to all of us. We can all do it better. We can all do and use more techniques that are better equipped and better suiting the thing that we're talking about. But unless you've got that foundation of, do I know this thing? Do I know this subject? Forget about it. The visual is just a means to an end. It's a a gateway between typically one person and another person, where one person is usually wanting to be smarter than they were before. But unless the origin person has access to that smart or has that themselves then you're just passing noise around. So systematic knowledge, I mean, my undergrad degree was in operational research, so it's always been about systems thinking, complex problems. Unless you know all that stuff, forget about it. And going back to Arsenal, I think one of the things that they do well, they understand the sport. They've got very big brain sports scientists and data scientists working there. They understand how all these things connect and how all these things influence. It's just whether or not they can convey that effectively to the and with influence to the people who ultimately pull all the levers and make these things happen but then you can't legislate for Mustafi slipping on his backside when all he should have done was (laughs) kick it out for a throw in so that's again where you've got this poetic beauty of imperfection well that's great so thank you very much Andy and that was our first show my pleasure Max thanks very much for inviting me Listeners, please look at um, www.visualizingdata to find out more about what Andy does, but also to see the new edition of his book, Visualizing Data. Thanks again to you, our listeners, and some future subjects will include designing for mobility 
autonomous vehicles and smart cities. And you can read more about our work on afterthefood.com. Don't forget to subscribe and rate our podcast. And thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.